You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, I trust you are well. I am well, thanks. I trust all our listeners are enjoying things and uh, those of us who are in Sydney or New South Wales have managed to survive a terrible week of weather and smoke, uh, uh, which most, I think, won't forget in a big hurry. No, most won't forget, but it seems that some of our leading politicians struggle to admit it or even to refer to it. Um, before we get back into that, because I think it's an important part of the conversation today, just to sort of tell our listeners, we've got a really good interview with Andrew Dillon from the Energy Networks Association coming up, and we're also going to discuss the integrated system plan, the draft of which was released um, on Thursday. But before that... Um, David, yes. Um, Sydney smoke. Scott Morrison doesn't want to talk about it. Angus Taylor spoke in Madrid and didn't even mention it at all. But very much on the minds of the people at the Smart Energy Conference in Sydney on Tuesday, um, which I found quite revelatory for, for, for a bunch of reasons. We go to a lot of these conferences. But um, yesterday there was a lot of really impressive speeches um, for, from a lot of very impressive people about the opportunities and the possibilities of ahead, if only we know how to grab them. Well, I think the main uh, point of debate, where where the the real point is, was Matt Keane's speech. But now, we we've heard Matt Keane, the New South Wales uh, Energy Minister, uh, speak a couple of times, and it sounds wonderful. And he's re- also New South Wales has produced an electricity strategy. Uh, which is an important piece of work and a concrete step, although my criticism is it doesn't have any dollars in it. But we've also heard Matt wander around to, you know, the people who are uh, anti-change, who I'll describe as the Ray Hadleys of this world, and say pretty much the exact opposite of, of what he seemed to say yesterday. Anyone who heard his speech yesterday would have been impressed that he actually believed what he was saying. And I guess it's still early in... He's been in office in that for less than a year, so we have to give him uh, a time to get things under control and to move forward. But New South Wales hasn't had a decent policy, has made very little progress, uh, and um, so that's important. We didn't hear yesterday from any of the... And I hate talking politics so much, but there were a lot of politicians speaking yesterday as well as others, and it was, as you say, a great conference. Uh, one I've, I haven't... In, the first session I went to was like a complete breath of fresh air, especially compared to what was outside. Um, uh, <laughs> but we didn't, he- we didn't hear from any Labor people by coincidence yesterday, but we know that the Labor Party is dealing with its own battle of trying to work with the um, uh, CFMEU and its, its coal, mining, uh, coal miner financial base. Uh, so the, there's a lot of struggle going on, but I think if you were at the conference yesterday, you probably came away with a vibe that one way or another, uh, the good guys are going to win in the end if, if we don't all die first. Well, yeah, that's... <laughs> 
I, I, I think that's a positive outlook, David. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, look, it certainly just reinforced the fact that the technologies basically on an, on an economic basis are a bit of a no-brainer and, and really on an environmental basis are also on a no-brainer. It's just that we just seem to be sort of dealing with these forces who want to argue both for um, an increase in emissions and an increase in prices, as I think um, Malcolm Turnbull um, said. But... Um, Yes, it was interesting. Um, Matt Keane um, certainly differentiated himself um, from the rest of the coalition on the subject of the bushfires. Um, I actually challenged some of his advisers um, at a, um, at um, a, an event later on that evening, just sort of making the point that we've made is that fantastic, lots of good speeches, but where's the action? And they just sort of said, well, look, you know, we do have a system plan now, which is certainly progress. I mean, you know, New South Wales has never had a renewable energy target, but it's probably had the most need to transition because it's got the oldest and least reliable coal generators. So it's got a plan now. Um, as you say, it needs the dollars and it needs actions. So we'll wait and see on that. But um, it was certainly great to hear from people like Mike Kennan Brooks talking about the Sun Cable Project, talking about his autonomous car um, um, investment. Um, and a lot of other people. We, we, we also heard uh, Alex, Alex, uh, talk, Alex talking about um, uh, the CWP plan for the hydrogen export from West Australia. Uh, Alex Hewitt is one of the, we've had him on this uh, podcast. He is one of the great visionaries of the industry, generally years ahead of everyone else in some of the things he's done, um, uh, although he never says anything very much. And so it was great to hear from him. Look, there's, there's undoubtedly a lot of good stuff going on. I, I want to come back after our very interesting interview with Andrew Dillon and, and talk about the priorities uh, and what I regard as the things that are going to make the whole thing fall over if we don't get them done and where I see very little progress. But let's come back to that after. Absolutely. Okay, we'll do that. Let's first hear, um, we actually recorded this interview last week, so it was before the release of the Integrated System Plan, and it was in fact before the release of the latest feasibility study into the Marinus link in, in, uh, from Tasmania to Victoria. But look, this is Andrew Dillon, he's the Chief Executive of the um, Energy Networks Association, and um, here's our interview with him. Andrew Dillon, Chief Executive of Electricity Networks Australia, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. My pleasure, Giles, thanks for having me. Look, there is so much to talk about in the uh, network space. I mean, ENA, your organisation, looks after electricity networks and the gas networks in Australia, and I'm guessing its members are the various network companies and um, other interested participants um, in the industry. But um, there is so much going on. There's talk about need for new transmission links. There's talks about upgrades for um, distributed networks, the need to cope with the challenges of rooftop solo, battery storage and other distributed generation and I should also add the opportunities from that. There's um, the integrated system plan, there's the hydrogen plan, there's um, there's just general policy um, overlap, there's also all sorts of different initiatives about you know even taking down networks and replacing them with microgrids and um, other remote um, standalone power stations. What gets you most excited out of all of that? And um, may I ask also what particularly makes you think, oh, my God, why are we bothering? <laughs> what, what do you find so frustrating um, about um, this role? Oh, look, the, the, what makes most excited is hard to give a short answer to. I mean, you touched on in the introduction some of the big things in our distribution space, the, the whole what, what does a future market look like? How do we transition from what are in most levels relatively dumb networks to much smarter networks, um, two-way markets potentially right down to the street level. Um, how do we harness the magnificent 
support that we see at the starting to see at the larger scale from batteries how do we get the the thousands of household batteries accumulated and providing that support back um, at transmission i think we have almost universal acceptance that we have under invested invested in transmission in the last couple of decades and given the movement to more and more variable generation um, we need to follow the very logical worldwide trend to becoming more connected and I think we are starting to see some steps on that path but it's been quite a process and then I think you also touched on hydrogen we saw just recently uh, Tonsley in Adelaide the launch of their electrolyzer over there which is a very positive step between to actively buying electrolyzer helping them get down the cost curve um, and obviously our gas networks see that as a real opportunity for the future in terms of things that sort of like the why bother oh you go no no you go you know you're just better get interesting now <laughs> uh, the things about why bother is well one of them is some of the debates about uh do we do we need the grid and all that sort of thing uh, i think there's there's a very real debate to be had at the edge of grid where we should start to take, and we are start seeing some networks starting to take customers off grid, where that makes far more sense than replacing infrastructure that needs upgrading for various reasons. Um, but having this debate about whether a more connected system or a less connected system makes sense doesn't make um, strikes me as rather rather inane. I think for the vast majority of the population, um, a more connected future is going to make a lot more sense. I guess the I guess the big question is this then um, you know there's been a lot of controversy over the investment that occurred about a decade ago now I suppose and um, that's kind of there hasn't been huge increase increases recently but um, you know those allegations of gold plating and a lot of investment which wasn't necessary and maybe too high returns some of those um, allowable returns have now been reduced significantly and some of the networks have been complaining about this um, and we can probably get into that a bit more detail but I guess the big question for consumers and a lot of other people network is that if we do need all these investments we do need new transmission if we do need to upgrade our distributed networks and take advantage of all the opportunities of distributed generation if that's the future we're going to then how can we be sure that we're not going to be overpaying and look i guess this is this is you know this is a question you can ask of any element of the industry but um just within the networks how can we be sure that we will not overpay this time and we will not build a whole bunch of transmission links which we find out that, golly gosh, 10, 15 years down the track that we don't quite need at the same capacity as we imagined. Uh, the blunt reality is you can never be certain about things like that right now. Um, and we couldn't 10 years ago and we can't now either. The, the challenge, however, we have is, as you, you were right, identified, particularly in some states, New South Wales and Queensland most particularly, there was a significant amount of investment around a decade ago and that did lead to a significant rise in power bills. The problem we have from that is we appear to have almost had a regulatory policy culture, if you like, um, post that that sees almost any network investment as bad and network investment must be as low as possible. And when you're sitting at the, well, I wouldn't even say on the cusp, well into a transformation as we're seeing now, um, if we can't tie in much more investment with in variable generation and then renewable, uh, the, the wind and solar, if we're not linking that with a more connected grid, then overall the total cost to consumers are bound to be higher. So it is a challenge. You need to make sure you don't build a heap of what becomes white elephants in three decades' time. But I think from where we sit now, there are numerous uh, links as in the integrated system plan that are you know, pretty, pretty much as close to no regrets as you can get. Um, and any sensible decision maker would look at the facts and say we need to be getting, getting moving with these. 
I think it's important to understand we don't fight uh, last century battles. Uh, as much as anything about the overinvestment that uh, did take place, it's, part of that was, uh, a large part in fact, was because there was a poor estimate of future demand. And in particular, people, uh, networks didn't understand or weren't motivated to understand that consumption per point of present was declining. I think that um, if you exclude rooftop, and people didn't foresee the rooftop solar, which also took demand away uh, from the wires and pole sector in the, in the end. And so I think uh, in front of the grid, that is utility scale, electricity consumption per household is about accumulatively down about 9% from its peak. And uh, this causes, of course, unit costs because the way networks are regulated, they're entitled to a fixed amount of revenue each year. If you've got less volume going through and require the same amount of revenue, then it pushes prices up. And that's a problem that will continue into the future as rooftop solar increases. And I think the most interesting part of the discussion to me, in a way, is how the role of the networks is going to evolve. And I know that the ENA, together with the CSIRO, Andrew, has done an amazing amount of work, a couple of years old now, on sort of thinking about that. But if I get down to the nuts and bolts of being a more communicated network, and I couldn't agree with you more that for most people, being more connected is uh, generally a good thing than less connected. Uh, I'm interested, the first part of that is communication. And to do that, you need the right sort of metering infrastructure. And I guess I've been disappointed that we had all these uh, meters in Victoria that can communicate, but they're not necessarily being used all that well. And what can you tell me about how the AMI, Advanced Metering Infrastructure Program, what the penetration rate of communicating meters is in states outside of Victoria? Uh, David, I don't have the hard numbers for what the penetration of smart meters is in the NEM outside Victoria. Obviously, in Victoria, it's close to 100%. Uh, the one frustration we are having is that the when the power of choice reforms that led to the competitive metering structure we now have in in those states, um, it was trumpeted as, as putting customers in the driver's seat. And I think the fundamental misalignment we are seeing is that 90 plus percent of customers actually have no desire to be in the driver's seat. They want someone else to do it for them. Um, they want it easy, they want it to work, and they want it to become increasingly uh, lower emissions. So. If, if customers need to drive this reform for it to succeed, it, it wasn't never going to succeed. Um, and the detail on the ground we're now starting to get is uh, networks in New South Wales, in Queensland, in South Australia, wanting to get uh, more closer to live data uh, on power quality and on other systems to be able to more manage the system in a, in a more live way. And they're simply not getting that data from the smart meters at the moment. Uh, in some areas, the metres that are being rolled out are not capable of doing it. Um, and in others, it's more an issue with the, the back-end IT behind it. Um, there was an issue, obviously, and you may recall a big debate about what the minimum specifications for those metres would be. Um, some in the network sector would argue they are not particularly smart metres at all. Again, in theory, the networks can get together and exchange and negotiate for, um, for a better service level from the metre providers. In reality, that's been very difficult to do. I wouldn't say it's never happened. There's still some work going on on that. But unfortunately, in the network sector, you're starting to see some people say this rollout is going so badly, we are far better off and our customers will be better off if we start to install various network devices in the, in the system, maybe not at every household, 
but at various uh, pretty low level in the system and will rely on that data for network management purposes. From a public policy point of view, that's uh, it's hard to see how that's a good outcome, but unfortunately from where we're at right now, that's the sort of discussions that are happening in the network space. And of course, we've just seen from the start of this month, the introduction or the formal introduction of the DER Distributed Energy Resources Register, which I think requires all uh, um, solar installations and battery installations to be recorded by AEMO. Just is, does that? Could you just clear me up on one point? Does that apply only to new installations, or or is the AEMO going to end up with a lot of data on all the existing nine gigawatts of solar and thirty or forty, fifty thousand homes that have um, household batteries? Yeah, we're working with AEMO at the moment on open energy networks, which is probably the key follow-on project, if you like, from the electricity network transformation roadmap you spoke about earlier, and. As part of that, with you know, fine reports will be out in coming months. But a couple of months ago, we put out an interim report that looked at what we call required capabilities, and number one on that list was visibility. Um, you simply can't manage a smart network if you don't know what is behind the meter. Um, you don't know what solar capacity is there. You don't know what storage capacity there. What demand management's there, and for the storage and demand management what capabilities they've got to be able to, you know, flick from import to export, how quickly and all that sort of thing. So over time, there is no doubt there is a need to get a degree of visibility of, it's not every, you know, we don't need to know about people's fridges, but it's knowing what things are capable. And the link down the track will be what devices will households, whether directly or through aggregators, want to be involved and participate in local markets and get payments for providing both network services at the local level and being able to tap into wholesale markets to manage spikes. And, and, and so, yes, so that register will actually, um, I presume, cover all the existing installations because I think that would be very helpful just on the measurement. It, look, there are a couple of other things, and I'll, I'll hand back to Giles in a second, but uh, I, could, I could ask about control and inverters at the household level and providing reactive power and the grid resiliency, but I wanted to ask the bigger question about revenue models, uh, because it does. It seems to me that most of the cost of wires and poles is fixed at the time that the wires and poles are actually built in the ground. And, you know, the return on capital from that, it doesn't, you can't really influence anyone's behaviour about that capital cost once the wires and poles are built. Uh, and most of the revenue is actually, uh, most of the OPEX is actually relatively fixed as well, although there will need to be some augmentation, improvement capital spent over the next few years to provide all these extra control systems. So I guess my two questions around that is how much capital is actually been having to be spent by the networks to put in these kind of devices you mentioned to deal with the high voltage issue, which is not always solar's fault anyway, but also in terms of the revenue model, if we want to have peer-to-peer -peer trading, if uh, I want to sell my excess solar to the neighbour next door, if I want to send my electricity to a street level battery instead of one installed in my house, should I really be paying wires and poles costs, usage charges every time? Or should, should would it be better if like the um, wires and poles capital cost was built into the sales price of the house somehow or other, and it was essentially just regarded as uh, something I could use, like, uh, I don't know, my broadband cable, where I've got so much capacity, I don't have to think about the unit cost. 
Um, I'll start with your first one, David. The, we are now starting to see, and South Australia and the two Queensland distribution networks have, get, have had a draft decision recently from the AER on, on their next five-year period. And they are obviously, coincidentally, the two states with the highest solar penetration. So they are now starting to see some reasonably significant capital in there um, to manage solar and particularly to enable uh, more solar to connect. Uh, as an interesting aside, South Australian Power Networks did a, a study as part of their proposal uh, from over a 1,000 customers. Uh, the first question was, do you support networks uh, spending more to enable more solar and storage to connect? Over three quarters said yes, 4% said no. And then even once they had walked through quite a bit more detail of exactly what that meant, how much the expenditure was, what sort of impact there'd be on bills, you still had a third of people saying, spend as much as you need to so I can connect whatever I want. And another half on top of that still saying, don't spend all you can, but do make sure you spend so that I can mostly connect what I want. And you know there might be some occasional capacity constraints. Um, less, I think it was around 13% were not keen on expenditure. So our customers are overwhelmingly telling us not to go crazy, but we have to be investing to allow them to, in, to connect and dispatch solar and storage at the household level. So we have to respond to that. And we have to make sure it works through the reg system. Um, on your second question, the revenue models uh, that we currently see, I, I see the bigger challenge is not so much in the, the how the revenue is calculated, although I, I'm I do think over time we will start to have and need to have some significant debates about uh, regulating services rather than cost-based and all that sort of thing. But the short-term challenge I think we absolutely face is how are we charging for network services. Um, most revenue for most of our members is still based primarily on simple cents per kilowatt hour usage and in most cases is simply flat rates right across the day. That's not, to be honest, that's pretty much never been sustainable with the network services uh, we provide to our customers and it's getting less and less so and there's no way it's going to work going forward. So being able to translate to, at a very minimum, different prices for different times of day, um, potentially demand charges both for importing and ex exporting and that sort of thing to, to better match up the, the services we're providing with what customers are doing um, is something we need to do. To give you a, a sort of reasonably live example on that, we're starting to see customer battery behaviour. So obviously most customers' batteries also have solar. And the very logical response, if you're not on a premium feed-in tariff, is as soon as your sun is generating, your solar system is generating more than you're using, to start filling up your battery in the morning. The problem we have is the relative size between most batteries and solar is such that those batteries still fill up before midday, before the peak export times, so the battery, the way it's designed at the moment, is often not helping with uh, export challenges, voltage issues and those sort of things in the local area. So how do we get the incentives right to encourage customers to partly to fill up their battery more slowly, to be honest, so they're helping at the peak times, and how do we give them a financial incentive to do that? Mm. It's interesting what you said there, um, Andrew. You're talking about, um, and, and some of these tariffs are going to be sort of quite problematic when you come around to um, to actually implementing them in, in, in terms of how pe people perceive them. And I think um, you mentioned there in passing um, export tariffs, so people being sort of um, charged, um, I don't know whether you thought of it, whether it was per kilowatt hour basis or a, 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 a demand type charge for export, but 
exports back into the grid. And we've seen this raised a couple of times. We've seen this more recently, I think, in WA. That's now a conversation um, being raised there. So is that? can you just sort of speak a little bit more about that and, and, and why that might be a good idea and, and why that's fair? Yeah, certainly. The, so in the, certainly in the NEM, there is a famous rule 6.1.4 which bans a distribution networks from charging customers for export. And when that originally came in, the logic was small generators should be treated equivalently to large generators. Um, but just as we are starting now to have a significant debate about access uh, as part of the Kigati reviews and whether there should be generator contributions and how they would work, um, we would suggest a similar logic needs to apply to the distribution level. At the moment, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but broadly, uh, once a network decides that a even a local transformer is starting to have maxing out capacity issues, what they will often do is say to the next customer that wants to install solar, um, sure, you can put your solar on your roof, but you're not allowed to export at all. You have zero export rights. Um, so we are effectively running at the distribution level by default a first-in, best-dress access policy, and no one thinks that's fair. So we have to get to a fairer, fairer method, and it's almost certain you would think some form of charging for capacity has to be part of that. Um, it should not, I can't see it being a significant revenue driver for networks, but what it needs to be is, is more of an equity issue to be able to let those who most value the export for whatever reason, they may have a deal with uh, reposit power or someone, um, to be able to pay a little bit to get that and to have those who are less fussed about it to, to benefit from not having as, as firm, occur, firm mm. access rights. What about in um, things like Western Power? And I think David and both David and I have um, written about it and we're quite interested when we went over to Perth earlier this year and this idea of community-scale batteries rather than having individual batteries or, or, or whatever. Um, is that an idea that's sort of taking hold within the eastern states as well with the networks there? Because that seems to me to be an option where you can actually start to provide a lot of the grid services you need and actually sort of address some of those issues where you've got a lot of people exporting. They can go to a centrally community-based um, battery and they can draw down, they can have an allowance sort of drawing um, back from that as well. And um, in WA, I think, um, I'm just trying to remember where the, um, was it down near Mandurah? Um, it seemed to have addressed um, a lot, if not all, of the issues that um, they were seeking to, to, to resolve. Uh, you've touched on an interesting issue with WA. So, yes, absolutely, they have both, well, the other one is um, standalone power systems and taking customers off-grid, um, both well, Horizon by their very nature, but also Western Power in their more patch around Perth have done some very interesting things in that space. Um, and sometimes they have been able to do it because they are not under the NEM rules, under the National Electricity Rules. And therefore, once they and Synergy, who are obviously both government-owned, are, are able to work together to, to get some various programs, whatever you're talking about, up and running, they tend to be able to push things through in a way that most of the rest of the country struggles a bit more with. Um, community yeah, batteries... That's interesting, Andrew. Something. Sorry, just to interrupt there, but it's, you've touched on something that I really care about, and that is that uh, it's this, particularly on batteries, and, and I want to get back to some other stuff about Kigani and that, but uh, it's this value stacking. We all know that batteries can provide a whole lot of, um, and for that matter, solar can provide a whole lot of services that can't really be accessed by the householder. And... Uh, in other countries with integrated networks, California and that, it seems to be easy to manage where, but in our disaggregated role, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, how are you finding the level of cooperation between networks and retailers and the uh, 
sort of uh, networks not been allowed to provide some services. It's, it seems to me a very complicated and bureaucratic and rule-based and difficult to make progress because there's so many just uh, obstacles placed in your way to actually get the transformation that we need and what can be done about that? Um, it's, a, it's a very fundamental question, David. The, and batteries are probably the best example of where ring fencing are struggling. The ring fencing rules, we would say, are clearly getting in the way of customer benefits here in this country. Because um, if you go back to fundamentals, the ring fencing is primarily about ensuring networks don't exercise monopoly power to distort, distort what would otherwise be competitive markets. And at a high level, that's a very solid theory, but it depends on where you draw the lines on that. And the lines in most of the NEM have been drawn that networks are not allowed to do lots of things. So batteries, for example, we have seen at the transmission level um, at Dalrymple in South Australia, uh, Electronet work with uh, AGL to put in a transmission scale battery that is providing all sorts of services both for Electronet and the, and the grid, um, but also AGL in various trading mechanisms. And that battery has been quite successful, um, but it has been a challenge for Electronet to get through all the regulatory challenges to make that happen. But that's a transmission. Um, the ring fencing requirements are very different at the distribution level, which is why you're seeing the likes of Ausgrid in, in Sydney propose community level batteries and see other ways we can do things. At the moment, the reality is when you have uh, a range of distributed batteries, because of their very nature, unless you have direct control, which you won't, the network can only ever rely on you know, 20%, 10% depends on the trial of that ba of battery capacity to be there. So from a straight efficiency point of view, grid scale batteries make a lot of sense. But then it is about how do we get the value stream for grid services and who can and should take the value stream of operating in wholesale markets and that sort of thing. I think we are well behind the eight ball on that one at the moment. Um, and we as networks are certainly keen to get some uh, and some sort of more sensible amendments to some of the ring fencing to allow where they make sense some more grid scale batteries to be rolled out. Just just on Dalrymple as an aside before I hand back to Charles, um, I, I mentioned I was talking to someone the other day who said that uh, that battery can operate a whole lot of um, uh, islanding and reactive and power control services but it's not allowed to do them because of uh, except in islanded mode uh, because uh, people are concerned about the ripple effects on the network further down the track. Uh, Giles, back to you for a moment. Yeah, look, um, Andrew, I just thought the um, uh, ring fencing stuff is really interesting because it's often been something that's occurred to me that, um, you know, this sort of vertical integration that we've got in Australia, it's sort of reasonably quite unique. You've got the networks as this sort of these ring fenced organisations and not allowed to move into generation and retail where it might make sense and where in other countries it's um, probably allowed. And um, it seems to me to be one of the biggest hurdles. Um, but that's probably discussion for a, another day. Look, you mentioned at the start, we talked about transmission. We should get into some of those other topics um, now before we run out of time. You talked about big transmission lines being um, required and some of those no regrets ones. Can you just sort of maybe talk about some of the ones that you think are no regrets and should be um, going ahead? And do they happen to conform with the, say, the first round of the um, integrated system plan as outlined by AEMO or is there a, a difference of opinion here? In terms of the immediate ones we think should be going ahead, I think we'd line up pretty well with the, the Group 1 projects in the Integrated System Plan. The, obviously, there are, we have there's now, things are in motion a bit on the Queensland-New South Wales interconnector and also the Victorian-New South Wales interconnector. Um, one which I do find 
particularly fascinating is uh, Energy Connect, the South Australia to New South Wales link. And there are, you know, you can do modelling till the cows come home on whether it works or doesn't work under various scenarios. Um, the th thing I think I would say is if you step back and look at the NEM now and think about how it might evolve and the, the growth we are seeing already and will continue to see in solar and wind generation, the idea that in 20 years' time, if Energy Connect is built, um, that we decide it's not needed. I think the probability of that is very, very low. So I would see that that is one that needs to continue. Um, and then it is about how does the market evolve and when various links make sense. So we're seeing quite a bit of work, obviously, on Marinus Link, the second uh, connection from Tasmania to Victoria. Uh, we're starting to see the Victorian government in particular very keen on further work on the Kerrang Link um, from Snowy around and down to Melbourne. Um, so, again, it's about... Should we build all these tomorrow? No, but should we be looking at all of them and figure out when they may make sense, how they interact with each other? Uh, I think that's certainly what we need to do. That's the key role of the integrated system plan. We we certainly thought the first edition of that was a very a very good starter along those along those lines. It was a, a solid recommendation from the Finkel Review to, to have such a such a plan, and looking forward to the development of the next ISP in the next six months. And just on the um, on the transmission ones, um, one of the questions that's often posed to us, and I see it on a discussion on our website, is, um, well, if we're going to have these links between these states here and we hear about Sun Cable and their massive project in the Northern Territory and going off to, the, to Singapore, then should we also be starting to think about links going across Nullarbor or these huge arrays which, you know, might be developed in this sort of pursuit of clean hydrogen and, um, um, you know, massive wind and solar arrays sort of sitting in the middle of the desert. And I think we had Darren Miller from Arena on um, a month or so ago talking about the possibilities there and he was also saying well let's just connect them to the main grid as well to to what extent are the networks also thinking about those sort of possibilities going down the track i mean i suppose their eyes would light up at the possibility but whether it actually is <laughs> works out um i guess is different yeah there are i think some of them to be honest are a little bit more down the track um what will be fascinating is is how does the technology the hvdc um, transmission technology develop. Um, the Sun Cable to Singapore I find fascinating. It is an awful long way. It will be in interesting to see whether they can get the economics to stack up on that. The one thing I would say, however, is that that cable, if it does make sense, will be driven particularly by the lack of resources in Singapore, um, whereas most of Australia, you would think uh, you don't a long cable from one place to another only makes sense where there's lacking resources. So... An east-west cable could make sense if you're tapping into solar where the sun's setting a lot later and therefore you'd be able to supply a peak in the east, east for example. But again, I don't think there's... I think most of those sort of projects are reasonably speculative at this stage. Most of our members are unsurprisingly pretty focused on the ISP projects and, and delivering a more connected grid in the short term. So, so just to continue on that theme for our listeners who might be interested and some might be investors, Energy Connect's about one and a half billion, Marinus is about two and a half billion, Hume Link's about 1.2 billion, Kerrang Link's about a billion, and the Q&I upgrades, the bigger ones, I've allowed a billion for that. So that's seven billion, and the biggest investor from all of that would be Transgrid, uh, which is a par partially listed company. I'll just leave that out there on the table. Andrew, we're running out of time. Uh, but I wanted to ask, we've had, uh, I ask everyone who comes on who knows something about it, about what they think about Kigadi. So I'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts about that generally. 
And secondly, what's the single one or two biggest points that you would have put into the ESB in terms of the post-2025 uh, uh, market reform? Um, the one thing, I mean, we've seen the reaction to Kigadi. We've seen there's many stakeholders who are not happy with it. From the network side, there's a couple of bits very keen to highlight. First of all is I have plenty of sympathy for the AMC on this in that we have to do something. I don't think anyone thinks our current access regime is working very well today and no one sensible thinks it's going to, if we just continue where we are, it's going to work well going forward. The question then is what do we do, when do we do it and how do we come through? Broadly speaking, if we are able to transition to um, more sharper price signals at a lo more localised price signals, um, we think that can help send signals to where generation occurs. But again, we use the cost of the transition and the time of the transition. And if you are doing that, um, generators will want and need various hedging products to be developed as well. I mean, there was talk at one stage of these hedging products driving the ISP. Um, we weren't a fan of that one. And the that has been backtracked a bit on now. Um, but we'll see what happens on access reform. Again, as I said, the, the sitting still doesn't sound like a sensible option to us, but it is how fast do we move and down with which path we move. And in terms of the ESB? Um, yeah, we're obviously participating with great interest in the post-2025 review. Um, we are, it's not as fundamental an issue to us as it is obviously to generators the energy only market versus capacity market sort of debate. Um, but again, as you start, if you look around the world, um, markets that are energy only markets are often struggling with high, high variable generation. Um, the challenge is if you have some form of capacity mechanism, what is it you are trying to incentivize? Are, are you hoping to keep certain generators open for longer? Are you hoping to incentivize investment in peaking plants, in more baseload plants? You know, or, or more batteries, and so I think we need to be very careful about what we're trying to incentivise before we design uh, any sort of mechanism to do that. It's fascinating stuff. Look, um, um, Andrew, I think one of the things that this conversation has highlighted has been that there is so much to talk about, and um, really we probably don't have, have enough time, and we'll have to get you back on and um, maybe discuss in more detail things like hydrogen, and maybe we can get a bit of a clearer idea on the rules um, going forward and, and also the need to... To, to, to adapt those rules. One thing I'd just like to finish on, though, um, David mentioned the report that you guys did with the CSIRO a couple of years ago. It talked about a changing grid, a decentralised grid, and all the opportunities that were involved and just highlighted the fact that if we get going now, um, there's so much that will be possible and it'll end up saving everyone money. Are you still confident two years down the track or is he, are you still as excited about the possibility of this change? Has technology um, increased your um, optimism about the future um, or is that tempered by the glacial pace of regulatory and political reform? Um, you know, when you sit down, I've got so many different questions, and <laughs> I've asked this. Look, I'm probably asking the same question three three different ways. But um, you know, how excited are you about the future, and how different will it be from from now? And and how do we get there? Uh, I think the future will is hap the technology is happening always faster than the regulations expect and often can deal with. Um, I think I don't see much point in getting frustrated by that. But also, equally, uh, rapidly changing regulations always have all sorts of unintended consequences. Um, I think there is a need for some smarter reforms, both in the tra transmission distribution space and indeed to make sure we can do hydrogen. 
but that sort of thing, you know, it does, there's an awful lot going on about this space. I think that's going to happen for some time. And I think the evolving role of networks is something that certainly from my end, I'm very excited to be a part of. If I can just give one final plug, happy to come back and talk to you guys again. We have Energy Networks 2020 in 2nd to 4th of June next year. So somewhere around then, I'd be very happy to come back on. I think we'll organise that, um, we'll that to happen. Look, um, David, um, thank you very much. And Andrew Dillon from the Energy Networks Australia, Electricity, oh, Energy Networks Australia. I think if I probably got that wrong at the start and I might have to try and change that. Um, thank you for joining Energy Insiders. Thank you. That was Andrew Dillon from Energy Networks Australia. Um, pretty interesting um, interview, actually, um, David. I mean, we could have gone on for much longer because there's so much to talk about now. And um, it is interesting that, um, that um, yes, um, we have had a very gold-plated grid and probably in the parts that we don't really need so much now. But now we're looking for a lot more investment um, to link all these different um, wind and solar resources, and I guess this is one of the underlying themes. Linking is the key word here. Linking is the key word, Giles, and we're going to make more investment to, in the end, have a lowest cost system. Uh, you know, investment lowers costs sometimes in the long run. Um, it doesn't always increase costs, even though it has to earn a return. Look, if you, are, if you, I think there are four things that we need uh, that. that as we progress, and we're going to be at 35% renewable energy within two years. So these four things are all pretty important as we go past that target. We need lots of wind and solar resource to provide the bulk energy. We've got that. There's no doubt about that. We need a certain amount of dispatchable power, and the exact amount is, is being addressed, but uh, the ISP has quite a bit to say about that. Uh, we need the transmission lines, of which uh, take a long time, uh, but, but where some progress has finally been made about three years too late. Uh, but the fourth thing where we have not started on, and which is in some ways the most fundamental building block of all, is the control systems. And by that I mean the way of dealing, controlling the system as the inertia in the system falls, which we know it is going to do remorselessly. Inertia is going to fall. Uh, uh, and we are going to have a system with millions of devices connected, generators, uh, to the grid, uh, all of which have to be controlled and control the system in one way or another. And what Australia, in comparison to Europe and the United States, is missing is that people that actually seem to get the problem and actually doing any work on it. This is where our lack of uh, power engineers, or more likely they've just got such big beards that they can't, they don't talk very much. They probably do actually exist. <laughs> uh, but we're not hearing from these guys about how the power power electronics uh, grid of the future is actually going to be, be, be achieved. And this is where I, I think uh, we're behind the eight ball. And it's the biggest uh, issue I see in the, in, in the, over the next five years. Yeah, well, it's interesting. And look, there's actually, you know, a really big debate um, about some of those sort of system issues and system strength issues and how much is needed and where you need it. And we've certainly written, we've also talked about in this podcast about some of the things that we've done so far to date have not necessarily been very efficient. We're throwing synchronous condensers around the grid. Some very smart people like Bruce Miller sort of saying, well, why are we doing that? And certainly what the hell are we doing? Putting them in those places there because that's not going to be effective and may actually make things worse. Um, Transgrid has um, also 
um, said the same thing. So I'm, what I like about the ISP is it actually just lays out these scenarios and particularly it talks about those fast change scenarios, the one led by distributed technologies and also the step change which actually takes into account the climate needs and the targets of 1.5 degrees to 2, 2 degrees. And once you've got the vision of where we can get to, once you've got the people who sort of say, well, we can actually do this and this is what it's going to require, then we can actually work backwards and say, well, let's make sure that we've got all the system requirements that we need to to do that. And, you know, it's the first time we've had this long, long, long-term plan. It's absolutely essential. Um, and I really hope, and it's sounding more promising now, and excuse that plan for going overhead, it's sounding more promising now that the COAG Energy Council and particularly the state ministers are really making this happen and sort of bringing the federal government along with it, albeit redundantly. And if I may just sort of hold the stage for a little bit longer, it was quite ironic to see, you know, as Angus Taylor is in Madrid, for everything that he has said about wind and solar, it's too much of an agreed, it can't support a modern economy, it's going to ruin us, and Labor's 50% renewable energy target is reckless and going to ruin the economy. And now, lo and behold, we discover that under the federal government's own emissions reduction scheme, which is basically using the counting loophole and the Kyoto credits, which is very controversial and may actually be refused. But in terms of actual emission reductions in Australia, the only reductions that are achieved out to 2030 under their modelling is from renewables, from that very wind and solar being brought into the grid, to the extent that it actually reaches the 50% renewable energy target that they've already, or, or, always decried. So really quite dishonest. And what frustrates me about this, David, is that it's, um, you just can't get it. Giles, Giles I can hear you're frustrated. I can hear you're <laughs> frustrated. Uh, and we're all frustrated. I think you should just think of them as a group of, uh, of anti-vaxxers. They're like anti-vaxxers, right? You're not going to, nothing is going to change those guys. They wear, they wear their willful ignorance like a badge of honour, like a badge of belonging, you know, and nothing is ever going to change that. The only way it's ever going to make that progress through those guys is when they see that they're going to lose an election, which I think uh, is getting closer and closer solely on the issue of climate change. But I want to come back to the actual ISP. You made the point that the ESP is getting behind it. Now, there are two things to say about that. Number one is that the ISP is, is going to be supported by, it's going to become effectively a form of law up to a point. Uh, and so the, the projects that get uh, locked into the ISP in stage one uh, are going to go ahead because, more or less, because they have to go ahead. Uh, they won't have to pass the anything like the RIT regulatory investment test that they've had to pass in the future. Uh, and uh, the second thing to say, and in fact, there are three things I need to say. The second thing is it still doesn't have a carbon objective in the ISP. So in a sense, as far as the likely generation needs go, it can be no more than scenario uh, analysis. And I would contrast that uh, with, uh, the, say, the California uh, plan, which is somewhat similar, uh, that, that actually has a carbon objective built in so that you can find a generation portfolio that optimises around a carbon constraint, which, which this one can't do. But what, what this ISP does do is take a much uh, broader view of the uh, distributed energy that we have in Australia, which is such a wonderful and unique part of the market. Now, leading on from that, what we are going to find, uh, as well as the lack of control systems, and you and I and everyone else has discussed this a lot, is that the coal generators are going to lose market share and they're going to lose revenue and there is going to be a missing money problem. And uh, 
for that matter, there's still not enough incentive. You can't get uh, power pumped hydro or dispatchable power where we need five to 16 gigawatts of the stuff to be built. The energy only market is probably not going to deliver that. So the other vital thing that isn't in this ISP, but is very important to the market is what the ESB, the Energy Security Board, comes through with in the way it changes to the market. There's not much more we can say about that, but the more you look at the problem, the more you expect that some something is going to have to change to ensure that as well as the, the transmission and the control systems and the wind and the solar, uh, there is enough way to get the dispatchable energy built. And for my final overboarding on this segment, utility solar is in a hard place at the moment. It's going to compete against distributed solar uh, which takes a huge chunk out of demand and price in the middle of the day. And utility solar, which is a very cheap resource, and I've said this several times and I'll say it again, uh, just won't get built uh, to the extent that we would like it to if we don't find a way uh, to give the utility solar generators a return on their capital, which will have to come by coupling them up with, uh, with um, uh, uh, dispatchable power somehow or storage. Yeah, interesting. Or we get the sun to rise at night time as well. Um, and that might have been too much of the cherry, but that's probably not going to happen. Um, just like to bring attention to in one In Byron Bay, thing. Giles, where you live, I'm sure it does happen, but not, not, here, not here in Sydney. We don't see the sun at all anymore. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go there to some of the meditation classes and see what we can do. Um, Look, um, I just wanted to draw one very quickly, just attention to the Northern Territory, and there's been interesting goings on there. Um, really interesting study in the clash of energy cultures and how you try and shift a really fossil fuel-based culture over to renewables. They've got a 50% renewable energy target there. Some people are not very happy about that. Some people complain about whether it can be done. A lot of people there think it should be done and can be done and are very keen for it to be done. Um, in Alice Springs, which is a small city, you know, 12,000, 15,000 customers, quite a lot of solar, a small grid scale thing, a lot of rooftop. Um, absolute catastrophe that happened in October when there was an absolute uh, system black. You know, we saw that in South Australia and then we had it in Alice Springs. But the report into this, which has cost, cost the two most senior executives in the Territory, uh, energy executives, their jobs, is just a litany of what not to do and how corporate culture can get in the way of a transition. They didn't anticipate the clouds coming over when it was very sunny. They didn't know how what to do, how to react. They didn't have any systems um, incorporating the battery storage with some of these gas and fuel diesel generators. When some of those generators went down, they had absolutely no idea how to restart them. There was no communication between the people on site and the people in the sort of centralised office. It was a catastrophe from where to go and quite extraordinary. And um, from here, it's difficult to see how this happened, apart from the fact that there was just this reluctance to embrace this new technology. And um, and um, just a complete lack of systems control. So um, really interesting stuff, and we'll probably write more about that. But anyway, David, I think that's about enough. I think we've rattled on a fair bit today. Uh, I think we have rattled on a fair bit. Uh, there's a lot more to say, but we're not going to say it now. Giles, I've very much enjoyed this chat. No, it's been great, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it too. I'd like to thank our sponsors once again, Solaray Energy and Evergen. Um, it was um, really great to have you on board all through this year. We've got one more episode to come where I think we'll be focusing on the integrated system plan and talking with AEMO. So look forward to that. Thank you all very much for listening, and uh, goodbye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. 
With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.